Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. It was $9 for the room. It was $1 for every extra person in the car. So the best thing for us was a family of four or five that pulled in. We got an extra four or five bucks. Mr. Bill Marriott. You know his last name. You've stayed in his hotels. How he helped his father turn a root beer stand into the world's largest hospitality company. I just came on board from the Navy. And I, my father said to me, well, a hotel's not doing well. I said, why don't you let me run it? He said, you don't know anything about the hotel business. <laughs> I said, neither does anybody else around here. Uh, so he let me do it, and I took over the first hotel, and we turned it around, and then we added some more, and now we're up to 6,000 hotels. Also, how he defines success today at age 85 and competing against the likes of Airbnb. And on politics, why he calls today's political climate very unfortunate and admits running for office never appealed to him. Here's my conversation with Bill Marriott. Bill Marriott Jr., thank you for being here. Thank you. Delighted to be here, puppy. I now know where the hotel brand JW Marriott comes from. Well, that one was named for my dad. Right, and you carry on the initials. There's a funny story (laughs) about that because um, we were opening a hotel in Washington about six blocks from where he opened his first root beer stand. Mm And I said, let's name it the J.W. Marriott because it's so close to where he started the business. And I didn't tell him about it. And I invited him to the opening, and he walked in the door, and he saw his name up there, J.W. Marriott, in lights. He says, what's that doing here? <laughs> I said, we named the hotel for you. Why'd you do that? I Aww. said, because you started the business just up the street. It's incredible. Marriott has grown into the world's largest hospitality company. Some really big acquisitions in just the last few years, and we'll get to those in a moment. But it did not begin that way, nowhere close to that. So take me back to the beginning when you were just a young boy and 60 years ago you stand next to your father and you open what would become the world's first Marriott in Washington, D.C. This is days before Eisenhower's inauguration. Take us back. Well, let's start out with a root beer stand. <laughs> okay. My mom and dad opened a nine-stool root beer stand in Washington in 1927. When the weather got cold, they put on chili, hot tamales, and hamburgers and hot dogs, which Mm -hmm. my mother cooked in her apartment and brought down to the root beer stand. And they named it a hot shop. And so all through the 30s and 40s, they developed a chain of drive-in restaurants in Washington called the Hot Shops. And then finally, in 1957, they opened their first hotel. And I just came on board from the Navy. And I, my father said to me, well, a hotel's not doing well. I said, why don't you let me run it? He said, you don't know anything about the hotel business. <laughs> I said, neither does anybody else around here. Uh. So he let me do it, and I took over the first hotel. And we turned it around, and then we added some more, and now we're up to 6,000 hotels. So this was back in the day when a room for five people was 14 bucks, right? Nine bucks for the room, and then an extra buck for each head. We uh, had a drive-in, uh, almost like a McDonald's drive through where you pulled in in your car and the room clerk was in a little booth and had said how many looked in the car. If we were going to be full, 
if you had more than three or four people in the car, he'd take you. But if you only had one person in the car, we were going to be full. He would say we're full. And so we, we what we called yield managed back then. Mm-hmm. So it was $9 for the room. It was a dollar for every extra person in the car. So the best thing for us was a family of four or five. It pulled in. We got an extra four or five bucks. But the story many people don't know is that it sounds like to me from your folks and your family they not really into the hotel business, wanted to be in the food business, the restaurant business, and it was just sort of happenstance that you guys fell into the hotel business, and then you said, give me a shot. That's right. They they had a great piece of land between the Pentagon and Washington National Airport, and um, they were going to build a commissary, which would be a distributor for all the uh, food going to the hot shops. Mm. And one of their executives said, that's a great location. Eisenhower is just developing the uh, Eisenhower interstate system. Sure. And so we need to build a hotel there. It's a great location. It's right on the entrance to Washington, right on the 14th Street Bridge. So we opened the first Marriott Motor Hotel, largest motor hotel in the world, Mm. 365 rooms. But before that, before you took over and were running it, you were working in the kitchen, as I understand it. That's correct. At one of your parents' hot shops. Um, you say everyone had to wash mugs a certain way, follow recipe cards a certain way. There was a real sort of key to consistency. What did you learn there that you took on to eventually be this big-wig executive <laughs> and run all these hotels? I learned that the restaurant business is a great fun. I loved it. I worked in the kitchen. I did not get on the floor serving, but I did everything in the kitchen. I did the soda fountain, I did the hamburgers, and I did the, you know, the deep fat fryers, and I washed the dishes, and I thought it was great fun. It was a, I loved the pace of the business. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the best part of it all. Restaurant business, hard business, though. Very hard business. I learned that, too. Yeah. And it was not very profitable. And I learned that as well as yeah. I got further into the business. So Washingtonian Magazine did a deep dive on you and your family and your your career running Marriott. And it describes you guys as kids, as the anti-Hiltons. And it goes on to explain why. It says you're raised Mormon, taught to be humble and to work hard. Now, let's put the sort of insults to the Hiltons aside and just focus on that statement. Is that, I mean, that was your childhood. I know that being Mormon was and is so important to you, your faith. Right. And that work ethic. Right. Uh, my father was very concerned that his kids would be sons of rich parents. Mm. They're my brother and I. So we had chores to do from the time we were eight and nine years old. Shiny shoes, you know, rake the leaves in the backyard, wash the cars, do all the things around the house that he could get us to do. And when we were 15, 16, we all started out in the business. Mm. And so he was very concerned that, that we worked hard. And the Mormon church... Uh, you know, you serve in the church, you work with a lot of humble people, and sure. consequently you can't relate to these humble people if you've got a big ego. And so it's very important for our family to just, you know, curb your ego and uh, really get down to, to working with people that are, that are not as fortunate and well-off as you are. Mm-hmm. So it was a great learning experience for me all my life. What role has your faith had in your life outside of sort of the lessons of hard work and and that. I mean, we, we spoke before this interview s- started about the fact that you lost a child. Um, you lost your son when he was 50 years old, and at any age, no parent should have to lose their child. Can you speak to that and the importance of faith in your life? Yes, I think that uh, we really do believe there's life beyond the grave. 
And my wife uh, was not destitute when we lost our son. She said he's over there on the other side uh, doing missionary work. He's over there. He's a great teacher. Our son was a magnificent teacher and used to teach Sunday school. I remember one Sunday school class he taught, he had the names of all the 12 tribes of Israel. And he wrote them right up on the board. Nobody could figure it out. And they said, where did you get that? He said, I learned it in high school and I still remembered it. But he was, we really do believe in life beyond the grave. We, we believe that life is eternal and we believe in eternal marriage. We believe that we'll have our wives and our husbands uh, beyond the grave. And now you have uh, 15 grandchildren? 15 grandchildren. 17, 18 great-grandchildren? 17, almost 18 grand wow. greats, yep. So back to you and your, your early life as you're starting out. Your father gives you this shot. You don't want to screw it up. And as you grew in the company and started to take on more and more responsibility, I've read that you and your father often butted heads with one another, that he really wanted to focus on the food part of the business. You were focused on the hotel side. And your father called these stretching exercises, right? Focusing on sort of how your vision and, and his were so different early on. He was very risk averse. He'd been through, his father went broke in 1919 in the Great Recession following the First World War. And he was... Uh, just barely missed going broke in the Great Depression, which took place in 1930, 31, right. 32. But at the same time, Washington was where he was doing business, and everybody came to Washington. Washington did not have a depression, and he made a lot of money in the hot shops during the Depression. But he was still very risk-averse. He did not want to borrow any money. He didn't. You can't build hotels without borrowing money. I mean, he said to you once, nothing, nothing good ever happens in a hotel. <laughs> True? <laughs> yeah, well, that's... Just, that, <laughs> that's not true, but that's the feeling that he had about things, yeah. So how did you get him to take risks? It was a long struggle, and we really never did. And so we would develop hotels on the side. Every now and then he'd approve one and feel good mm -hmm. about it, but the majority of the hotels that we developed and built, he did not want to have anything to do with. For instance, the New York Marquee here in New York, which is sure. our flagship hotel, 2,000 rooms on Times Square. He, um, he was opposed to that and voted against it in the board meeting. Wow. I'd say it's pretty profitable now. It's the most profitable, most successful hotel in our system. So I think as parents, we all think of when we have children, how are we going to raise our child, of course? And there is sort of uh, increasingly now, I think, this philosophy of your child is the most wonderful, precious thing in the entire world, and you should tell them that every day. That is not, I don't know if that's right or wrong, I'm just learning, but that was not your upbringing. Your father, you, you say, did not praise you often, that he was an interesting mentor and that he would rarely praise, nothing was ever good enough, in your words, you called him a perfectionist, very critical, very tough. What was that like? It was very tough. You know, he never praised, you're right. And the great thing about him is he taught me how to figure things out on my own. I remember we had a very difficult problem. I didn't know what the answer was, and I was really, really struggling. And we were in a meeting together, and he listened to my struggles, and he didn't say anything. About an hour later, after I'd returned to my office, he came in, he sat down across the desk from me, and he told me exactly what I needed to do to fix the problem. He mm. knew the answer all along, and he did for several other things that, that I had to struggle with, but he was teaching me to come up with my answers. Mm not to look for an easy way out. Learn by 
thinking about the problem, solving the problem, and moving on. And he had the answers, and he finally gave them to me on that one occasion. But that was very seldom that he did that. It seems like you appreciate that kind of fathering now. But I, it's hard for me to imagine that at the time that wasn't pretty hard. He was very tough. He was a perfectionist. Nothing was ever good enough. My mother and I used to tell him all the time, that's not good enough. You're never, you're never satisfied. Yeah. He never was. <clears throat> he really believed that success is never final. Was he harder on you because not only were you an executive at, at the companies, but you were his son? Yeah, I think he was. He knew that uh, I knew he wouldn't fire me, and he knew I wouldn't quit. <laughs> so, so it was that kind of a relationship. You have talked about a, a, a brief conversation you had with President Eisenhower um, and that he taught you the importance of always asking others in meetings, in, in the corporate setting, what do you think? Tell, talk to me about the role that he played in your development as an executive and a boss. Well, my dad was a good friend of Ezra Taft Benson, who was Secretary of Agriculture. And my dad convinced uh, Ezra Taft Benson to bring him to our farm. And it was a cold day in December, so Ike and his wife came to the farm. And they were going to shoot quail. And they set quail out in the field so he couldn't miss. And uh, <laughs> leg it, was, up there. it was 19 degrees, and the wind was blowing. It was miserable. And we were all standing around by the fire, the president and Ezra Taft Benson, my dad and I. And they were trying to decide whether to go out and shoot. And the president turned to me, and I was hiding in the background because I'd just been commissioning ensign in the Navy, which is as low as you can get. And he looked at me, and he said, what do you think we should do, Bill? And I just said, wow. And I said, it's cold out there. Let's stay inside. And I thought about that a lot. How did he deal with the egos he had to deal with, Montgomery and Patton and sure. some of those people? And I thought, you know, he, he got along and he built a great legacy and he built a great team because he respected what they had to say, wanted to learn what they had to say, and listened to what they had to say. So did you carry that on as I've you tried. rose up? I've tried to carry it on. It's I'm, hard in a big company to listen to people at the bottom. It is very hard, but you get your best ideas. You know, I learned one thing working in the restaurant, kitchen. The soda fountain person who worked that soda fountain for the last 10 years yeah. knows more about that soda fountain than anybody in the whole company. <laughs> if you've got a soda fountain problem, ask them how to fix it. Don't go in and tell them what to do. Ask them what to do. Is it true <coughs> that when you guys bring on executives, like as high-ranking as, as they can be, you, you make them sort of do the do the quote-unquote dirty work. Do you bring these people in and say learn the, the hotel business? We want them to up? learn from the bottom up if there's a chance to do it. We want them to get, get into the business and understand. The people on the firing line are working extremely hard mm -hmm. and you know we have to respect them and provide them with opportunities. Mm -hmm. The key to a success of our business is our people, our people culture of taking good care of our associates so they'll take good care of the customer and the customer will return. And the one of the motivating factors for taking care of our people is providing them opportunities. So then, where do you stand now on the minimum wage debate? Because you have so many thousands and thousands and thousands of employees. And this is something that fast food executives are having to deal with uh, as well right now and tackle. And, you know, what is a living wage in America? It's different here in New York City than it is, uh, you know, in, in rural Minnesota, for example. 
where do you where do you fall on that? Because also part of keeping employees and keeping them happy is paying them a wage that they can hourly workers that they can support their family on. I think it's the market. What does the market tell you is the right wage in that market? Just as you said, Minnesota is a very different market. You know, North Dakota is a very different mm -hmm. market than New York or Washington or Boston or San Francisco. And so, what is the prevailing wage for people who are but at the that entry what level? We've done. I mean. To be fair and frank, isn't that what we've been doing that has left, you know, a good chunk of Americans behind, following market forces? Well, I think it's been proven that if you raise the wages more than they should be raised, that they're going to lose jobs. They're going to replace them. They're not mm -hmm. going to. They're just going to close up. You've got a lot of restaurants going out of business because they can't make it. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they can't make it is because the minimum wage is too high. In New York City. The unions have pushed the wages so high that there are only a few restaurants and hotels in the city that are not outsourced. Mm. Most of the hotels in New York City do not run their restaurants anymore because they lose so much money on them. But then there is the argument that some would make that say it's up to corporations to have it impact their bottom line and make their shareholders willing to take a bit of a hit to pay out more. You can only take so much of a hit. Mm. I mean, we had one hotel in this city where we had a very nice, fancy restaurant was losing three to four million dollars a year. You can't take that kind of a, of a hit to your bottom line. It just doesn't. That was because of staffing costs. That was because of labor costs and re work rules that said you had to have so many people in the kitchen, whether you needed them or not, mm -hmm. and how many tables a person could wait on. You know, they needed to work on more tables, and they couldn't. So it's that kind of thing that's. Uh, really hurt us in this town. You've led now for 40, you led for four, 40 years? 40 years, right. 40 years. And what I've gleaned from what I've read is that key to your leadership style is getting out. You don't like to be in one place. You don't really like sitting in the office very much and in your business. You need to get out to the hotels, see them, see what's working, see what's not. That you visit nearly 300 hotels a year, meet with these employees. What's the real impact of that? What can you not achieve if you don't do that? And the lesson to other leaders? The lesson that I think is important is find out what's going on. Get hooked up to the field. You know, it's very easy to isolate yourself. Get yourself in an ivory tower, you start making decisions, and the decisions are the wrong decisions because you really don't know what's going on in the hotels. Did you do that ever? Did you ever make that mistake? I made it a lot, sure, everybody does. But at the same time, I think we made less mistakes by being out with the people than we would have if we hadn't. You're a leader in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you talked a little bit earlier about sort of the, the role that, that faith plays for you. Um, you and your father decided to put the, put the Book of Mormon in hotel rooms alongside the Bible, is that right? Yes, we did. Talk, talk to me about that decision. It's a wonderful book. There's a lot of things in that book that will improve your life. And uh, a lot of people who've read that book uh, have joined the Mormon Church as a result of it. Hmm. And uh, we will have over a million Book of Mormons in hotel rooms around the world in the next few months. Because since we acquired Starwood, we're starting to yeah. put uh, Book of Mormons in the, in the Starwood Hotel. Now people will know why when they open up their bedside table drawer. You've said that the church has taught you that, quote, you can be in the world but not of the world. 
That's right. I mean, we believe, you know, we don't drink. We don't drink alcohol. And at the same time, we probably are one of the biggest distributors of alcohol in the country through our hotel bars and, and yeah. restaurants. At the same time, we don't drink. So we're in the world in selling liquor, but we're not of the world because we don't drink. That's, so I think that's, that's a example. simple example. Yeah. yeah, right. So you talked about the acquisition of, of Starwood. Right. I was very concerned what happens to my points, but now, you know, we've got that. You're okay now. <laughs> Are you an SPG okay. member? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes, well, and Marriott. So oh, now, good. now, now we they have merged. merged. We're merging, right. Uh, this is a huge, huge, huge deal. And 30 umbrella brands, uh, 30 brands now, hotel right. brands, fall right. under the Marriott umbrella makes you guys, you know, the world's largest hospitality companies, 122 plus countries and territories. Do you ever sit back, you must, and think, wow, I remember the first, I remember when? And, and how do you stay core to the principles you built it on when you balloon so much and when you acquire a completely separate entity? We want uh, our new operators and managers of our hotels to buy into our culture. We want them to understand the importance of people. Mm -hmm. People come first, train your people, provide them with opportunities, and the business will grow and it will be profitable and be more important in people's lives. And that's what we want them to understand. What's been the biggest stumbling block to the merger? It's been very interesting the fact that the people in the hotels that we've acquired buy into our culture 100%. But I asked you the biggest stumbling block. What's been the hardest well, about I think bringing the, these two giants, behemoths, I together? I think the biggest challenge that we have is, is IT, information technology. The tech side. Oh, right? yeah, the tech side is huge. It's got several hundred million dollars to merge these, these uh, systems because they're all different. Starwood had a totally different set of systems than we had, and mm -hmm. so now we're trying to merged them. They had a lot of good systems that we're trying to pick up on our own. We had a lot of good systems that they're merging into. So really it's the technology thing as far as I'm concerned. Uh, speaking about technology, Airbnb has, I can imagine, sort of rocked your world in ways that you might not have expected a decade, even five years ago. And they are a serious, formidable competitor uh, that is getting better by the day. So what are you doing to take them on? Well, we just have to continue to do a great job for our, our guests. We just have to say, you have a consistency when you stay with Marriott. You know what you're going to get. You know you're going to have a, a bath towel in your room. <laughs> you don't have to bring your own towel. I mean, it's that kind of a thing. And you, don't, you know the bed sheets are going to be clean and, and changed. But don't you have to innovate beyond that? Because, I mean, you know, I know a lot of folks who, who rent their apartments out through... Airbnb, and there's a lot of sort of fail-safes now. There's the background checks, there's the reviews. You know, if you, someone does one bad stay, you get a bad review, no one's going to stay there anymore. I mean, as you think forward for the company and you think about the, the competitors that are out there, does it ever keep you up at night? And do you think, wow, there are things we need to change to stay on the cutting edge? I'm not sure there is anything we need to change to stay on the cutting edge. I think we have to continue to be consistent mm -hmm. in our offering and in uh, our people taking care of the guests and let people know that when they come to stay with us, they're going to get a good experience. And it's going to be a consistent experience, whether so, it's Ritz-Carlton or Fairfield Inn. You know, mm -hmm. whatever the brand is, 
we're doing the best we can to provide a fantastic right. experience for our guests. I think a lot of folks might not know those all fall under Marriott, by the way. Well, we don't have Marriott hooked up with Ritz-Carlton yet, but we have Marriott hooked up with all the other brands. Do, do I know you're someone who has not stopped working and won't ever stop working. <laughs> that's, that's clear. And we'll get to the work-life balance question in a moment. But what, I mean, what is success for you? When you look back on your 40 years leading, it's got to be, I would imagine, more than just, I grew this company, I became, you know, I was successful, I made my shareholders wealthy. W what else is it? What's success for you? My father used to say, and he's right, success is never final. So I have to keep looking down the road. How am I going to get the IT situation fixed? How am I going to merge these two companies? I've got a great CEO with Arnie Sorensen yep. who's just doing a fabulous job. And I, I support him. I leave him alone as much as I can, but I still can't pull myself Something tells totally me you don't away totally from leave him alone. Well, I call him <laughs> a, f a few times, you know, every now and then with some ideas, and uh, he's very good. He's been very supportive. But, so you're one of those folks, it sounds like, that does not think they've achieved success. Uh, not really. Mm. I really do believe success is never final. So let's talk about Arnie and making Arnie CEO as he rose up within the company. Your son, one of your sons, was also rising up within the company. John, I believe, is that? Yeah, John. John was rising up within the company. And sort of from the outside, many people looked at them as this is a sort of neck and neck and neck and neck and who's going to be CEO. You ultimately, it, it was Arnie, it was not your it's son. Not and you've said that was a belief that ultimately your son was more of a startup guy, would not right. be happy as CEO. Is that how he saw it? He saw it too. It took a while for him to, to realize it, but he did not like long meetings, and Arnie's in probably seven, eight-hour meetings almost every day. Um, he just didn't want to develop a team like he maybe should have, and he was just an entrepreneur, and the entrepreneurial skills went in a different direction from being mm -hmm. the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. You say he he saw that eventually, so that makes it was it was originally hard for him because he, he sort of I gave him he had every experience he could have had in the company. Yeah. He managed a hotel. He'd worked in development. He'd worked in marketing. He'd worked in all the disciplines. He knew the business from A to Z, and it got big. And he just decided it was just too much. So how how what was that conversation like? Not from just father and son, but from it was hard. chief executive down. What did you do? How did you It was very hard. It? Well, I got him to realize that uh, it wasn't for him. He wouldn't have been happy. The key to success in business is being happy. Mm -hmm. Love what you do. And he wasn't loving it. He wasn't loving the, the discipline that was required. He wasn't loving the long meetings. And it was just wasn't a fit for him. And he finally realized that. So a question that I often ask leaders, and I think that too often sort of unfairly gets mostly asked to female CEOs is work-life balance, especially when they have children. You're the father you know, of, of four children. Um, so I'll pose it to you. What was work-life balance for you as a father raising these kids, being on the road so much? I know wanting to be home with your family more. How did you do it? And are you happy now looking back with how you did it? I had a couple of rules. One, I'd be home every night for dinner at 6 o'clock when I'm in town and eat dinner with the family. I, I avoided a lot of dinners with com customers, owners, that mm -hmm. type of thing in terms of being home whenever I, whenever I was in town, I was home for dinner. And Saturdays, totally with the family. And Sundays were at church involved, but that was with the family too. 
And I think the key to it is I never learned how to play golf. <laughs> I stayed away from the golf course. <laughs> I stayed with my family instead. So because your son, David, first grade, is in first grade and portrays you, draws this picture that's very similar, by the way, to a picture I drew of my dad. Um, this one was you at home in a suit behind a desk working instead of playing with him. Now, I drew a picture of my dad, but at the office with the suit behind the desk. But he used to take me to the office on Saturdays with him, and I'd sit in the office next door. And I liked it just because they had soda, and I could, couldn't have that at home. But when you saw your son David's picture, first grader portraying you that way, did that? what did that make you feel like? I got a big kick out of it. I thought it was very clever, very sharp. And I realized, you know, I'd probably need to spend a little more time with him. Okay. <laughs> Message to dad. Message to dad, yeah. You're working too hard. You need to be home with me and go to more of my games and those kinds of things. And, and by the way, David today has uh, three boys and a girl in there. He spends a lot of time with games and with his kids, yeah. and he's doing a fabulous job in the company as well as a good father. Does it matter more the quantity of time that you are with your children? meaning making every game, right. or the quality of the time when you are there? Well, I think it's quality. I think it's you, you really have to you manage your time and do the best you can in all areas. And uh, you, you can't ever get it right. In other words, you've always got something out of whack. You're either not going to enough things with your wife or your spouse, and you're not mm -hmm. being the kids' games enough, and you're not working. Being, I only visited 100 hotels this year. But I was doing over 300. Oh, only 100. <laughs> You're also not CEO anymore, so I think Arnie's got a little bit more on. Some of that gets to fall on him. Yeah, he's doing a lot of tremendous amount. You brought up your wife, and I think it's so important to talk about people's partners in life because I know that my husband is integral to my ability to do my job, right? And right. I hopefully to his because of the shared work at home that we really split. Talk about your wife. and, and she, She's been tremendously supportive. She's been a great mother. Uh, she's a beautiful woman. She takes really good care of herself. And uh, it's just been a fabulous marriage. 62 years we've been married now. Could you do it without all she... Could you have achieved this success without all that she did? No, because she's been a great mom. She took care of the kids. She cooked the food. She ran them to, ch to church and to school and she she was a chauffeur just like all the mothers are today and all so, the mothers and fathers are today and fathers are too yeah has looking back do you think that the perception of women and mothers um stay-at-home mothers was was wrong back then did they get enough credit for all they do so that you i don't think they ever got enough credit i think that they they deserve a lot more credit than they've been getting yeah Philanthropy has been uh, big for you and sort of where you put your money and your time and what you're focused on right now. So what is the most important cause in your book today outside of your work and your family? We've contributed a great deal to hotel schools. So the schools, colleges, and universities that have a hotel program, hmm. we've contributed a lot to. But more importantly, I think we've contributed a lot to medical research. You mentioned my son Stephen passed yeah. away with mitochondrial disease. We're investing a tremendous amount of money in studying mitochondrial disease to try and come up with some ideas as to what we can do to help cure that disease. And uh, our family's had a history of um, uh, cardiac problems. Mm -hmm. And I had cardiac surgery and bypass surgery and uh, had some heart attacks and 
my dad died of really bad heart. Mm. And so we're putting a lot of money with Mayo Clinic on their regenerative uh, medicine program where they're learning to, to um, teaching how to do mm -hmm. heart, new heart valves and new things like that. So we're, those are the two areas that we're, and my, one of my nieces has um, a problem with endometriosis mm -hmm. and so we're funding a lot of money in that area. You've called Stephen, your son who passed away, someone who had more courage than anybody that you'd ever seen. He did. He never once complained, although he was deaf and almost really? deaf. He had 80% of his hearing gone. He was totally blind. He couldn't walk very well because you can't walk when you can't see. And uh, he never complained. He was in the office every single day working and uh, was in charge of our company culture. He'd go around and make speeches all over the country and uh, he was just fantastic just fantastic. So let's talk a little politics, if you will, since okay. you, you know, got advice from the former president, <laughs> President Eisenhower, and your family has been active and engaged in the political realm for a long time. Mitt Romney, uh, I've learned, was named after your father? Willard. Yes, Willard Mitt. Willard Mitt Romney. Yeah, that's the Willard part came from my dad, yep. You were a big supporter of his presidential bid yes. in 2012. What do you think of the political climate today? Very unfortunate. I think that uh, you don't get anything by fighting. You have to get things done in business as well as in government through collaboration, mm -hmm. through working together, working with a team, and uh, that's not happening. And until it starts happening, I don't think anything's going to happen in this town, in this town of Washington where I live. Whose fault is it? Oh, I think the president's got a lot to to, to make up for. I think he's, you know, he's generated. Um, some animosity on the other side of the aisle, and uh, I think the health care bill is indicative of that right now, you know, zero support from the Democrats and Republicans defecting, and so I think that that was one of his core uh, promises that he was going to fix health care, and it uh, mm -hmm. doesn't look like it's going to happen. You're a Republican. Yep. He says it's the obstructionist Democrats' fault. Uh, I think it's the fault of not reaching across the aisle. You know, Reagan did a great job reaching across the aisle. He was buddy-buddy with Tip O'Neill and had him over for lunch. They'd fight like mad and then they'd have a drink together and they'd get along and respected each other and supported each other and he got a lot done. So your message, if you, have you met with the president, by the way? Not since he's become president. I knew him a little bit before because we were in the same business. During the campaign? No, it was the, before the campaign. Okay, yeah. so if you were in the Oval Office sitting with him, we know he brings a lot of business leaders in for their advice. What would, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give him? Reach across the aisle. Give up some stuff? Yeah, whatever you have to do. Get Schumer in the White House. Have lunch with him. You know, go to a football game with him. Play golf with him. Do something with him. But, uh, you know, start working the, the other side of the aisle a little bit. Make some friends over there. If not, is it going to cost your party in 2018, 2020? Well, almost always 2018. Right. The... Uh, party at this and the question is though how much right command is gonna gonna win we're gonna lose really you're gonna the Republicans i mean the party the republicans are, will lose some seats obviously and the question is will eight, they lose control how much they're gonna lose what do you think i don't know i think they'll probably hang on to the house and senate mm. but the majority will be very small i ask uh, every ceo that i interview this i ask them will you 
dip your toe in politics one day. Will you run? Do you want to run? Not at 85 okay. years of age. I get, I get that, but you don't get out of this question because of your age, because even if people can't see you now in this podcast, they can hear you and you are a very young 85. Um, the consistent answer I get from these executives who are not 85 years old is no, because I don't feel like I can get anything done in Washington. I don't feel I can, I can affect as much change there as I can in the corner office. And that, to me, is a very sad reality, right? That some of the brightest, most engaged don't want to run because they actually feel, feel like they cannot get anything done. What do you make of that? I think it's the nature of government, whether it's the local level or the state level or the national level very, very hard to achieve anything. And it's very frustrating for somebody who's been a CEO, has, has really accomplished a lot, to, to take on that kind of a role where it's so difficult to get anything done. Is there hope from history that it can change and be less dysfunctional? And you can I have, should, you know, uh, an, another new deal of sorts and you can have these uh, efforts that lift up more Americans? I sure hope so. I don't, don't give up hope, but uh, I, I'm just hopeful that uh, it will be able to resolve the issues. You never ran? No. Why? I was having too much fun doing what I was doing. And I, it never appealed to me, never really appealed to me. For that reason, basically, y you know, you, you work yourself to death. These, these politicians work hard, very, very, very hard. Oh, please, you work hard, too. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I didn't get a lot of grief. Uh, and they get a lot of criticism, no matter which side of the aisle they're on. Somebody's always after them, criticizing them, tearing them up. And mm. what's the fun in that, you know? What business leaders do you admire the most right now? Well, I think Jamie Dimon's doing a great job. At J.P. Morgan. At J.P. Morgan, yep. I admire him a lot. And, uh, you know, I think the leaders of the various tech companies, Zuckerberg and and these guys are doing a great job. Zuckerberg's in an interesting place right now, right? Because there's been a lot of criticism of Facebook um, following the election, just in terms of, you know, unsourced news that was, was, was passed on and on, et cetera. And they're looking at taking very seriously how do we sort of fix this. Um, what would your advice to a young, have you met Mark Zuckerberg? No. So what would your advice to a young Mark Zuckerberg be? Because he's still very young. Despite his wealth and his accomplishments, he is incredibly young. Listen to your constituents. So that's, I mean, that's like two billion people. <laughs> well, what have they got to say? Yeah. What's the problem? And he's been doing that. He's been traveling all across America from rural South Dakota. I mean, all over the country, meeting with these families, talking to them. That's what he's got to do. And he'll come up with some ideas where he can fix the problem. As long as he's out listening to his people and, and encouraging them to speak up and tell them what they think, he'll come up with some answers. Should Jamie Dimon run for office? People ask him that a well, lot. Well, he'd be good. He's articulate. He's, he's attractive. He's smart. You know, he could, the only office he could run would be president. He's not going to run for senator. Why? Look what job he's got. And look at the job of the Senate. I mean, it's... It's back to that, can we get anything done? Well, that, and it's, it's a t terrible job, I think. You think being a senator is a terrible job? Yeah, they don't get anything done. It's total frustration. Mm. Do they? 
You're in the news business. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> when you look back on your tenure, and I know it's not over, and I know you're still calling up Arnie Sorensen and still working <laughs> and visiting 100 hotels a year, what will you remember the most, do you think? Oh, it's just been a great, great dream. It's been a great ride. I've just had a ball. And I love the business. I love the people working in the business. We had a staff meeting last week, and there were about 10, 10 in our senior staff that are sitting around the table. And I looked around the table at them, and I said, I'm so proud to be part of this team. I'm so proud that we've, Arnie's assembled a great team of people. Mm. And I said to myself, isn't it wonderful to have these smart, dedicated people? And we have a lot of fun. We get a lot of laughs, and we really have a lot of fun. As of up to a few years ago, at least, it was the case that you did not use a computer. I still don't. <laughs> you still don't. You and Warren Buffett, by the way. He doesn't Although either. he doesn't email. I think, I think he might play some bridge online. Does he really? He does. <laughs> he does. But not use a computer. <laughs> That's incredible. I write 700 customers notes a year. You do? Personal handwritten notes. Huh. Who gets those notes? The customers who write me, the guests who write me and say I had a good stay, a bad stay, or whatever it is, and I want to recognize so-and-so in the, in the coffee shop. I want to recognize so-and-so who cleaned my room every day mm -hmm. for a week. And I'll write the person who cleaned the room, and I'll also write the person that uh, wrote, wrote me the letter. What do you want your kids to say about you one day? He was a good dad. He's a good dad. He treated me well, he taught me well, and he loved me and he supported me. Bill Marriott, thank you very much. Thanks, Bobby. And congrats on everything. Thanks, Bobby. Appreciate and it. on the 17 or 18 great-grandchildren. That's probably the best part <laughs> of it all. That's the best. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.